Hi everyone, welcome to Brave Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Today we're gonna talk about an issue um, that keeps coming up over and over again, and that is data. Uh, who owns the right to your personal data and how much is pharma obligated to release information um, about data surrounding diseases like Alzheimer's. Well, I'm so happy today to have with us Hank Greeley. He's from Stanford University Law School, and he is specifically um, an expert on the ethics behind biosciences. So thanks so much, Hank, for joining us today. My pleasure. Let's start first on um, genetic data before we get to big pharma. Um, I want to know if I um, get the results. Um, a lot of people are worried to get their uh, genetics tested um, because if they do have a predisposition to Alzheimer's disease, the biggest fear, I believe, is people are worried that's going to fall in the, sh the hands eventually of insurance companies. So how much as as a consumer, are we protected with our personal data um, if we are getting genetic tests? So there are a couple of protections. Uh, the biggest is the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act passed by Congress about 12 years ago now. Uh, it prohibits health insurers and employers from discriminating against people based on their genetic information. So your APOE4 status, your PS1 status, if you've got an early onset Alzheimer's uh, gene uh, variation in your family, that's protected. Your family history is also protected. There are a couple of problems though. It only deals with employment and health insurance. It doesn't deal with life insurance. And most probably significantly for Alzheimer's uh, community, it doesn't deal with disability insurance or long-term care insurance. Almost every state, I think 47 of the states, have similar laws of their own. Some are broader, some are narrower. None of them has really been tested. So there are some protections. The protections don't encompass everything. And of course, the mere fact that something's illegal doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Uh, race and sex discrimination in employment have been illegal since 1964. And I believe they still occur from time to time. So. On that side, that's the effort to prevent bad things from happening if your privacy gets breached. There are also some protections for your privacy itself. So one strategy is make sure no one else sees your information. The other one is make sure they can't do anything bad with it. Gina is the can't do anything bad with it. Uh, the protections for your information though are actually a lot less powerful than you think, than most people think especially if you're using a direct-to-consumer company like 23andMe. Basically, your protections are whatever protections are included in the agreement with the company. Uh, some companies have stronger, some have weaker. Most of them want to be able to use your data for their own purposes, and some of them, like 23andMe, very specifically want to share your data or sell your data. It's sharing, but they get paid for the sharing share your data with other researchers. So but can we assume though that's anonymized though? I mean, obviously, I mean, I get an email every, a week from 23andMe asking me, you know, to like use my data for science, for the advancement of science. Um, I'm assuming, um, even though I haven't ticked permission, I'm assuming that's all anonymized. Is that wrong of me to assume? 
Yes and no. It will be technically anonymized. It will not, well, they say, and I believe them, that it won't have your name, it won't have your social security number, it won't have your visa number, um, won't have any, won't have your address or your email address. The problem is, particularly with genetic information, de-identification is a myth. And that with any sufficiently robust data set, if somebody really cared, they could go back and re-identify you. Um, the more data is out there in terms of genetic data, the easier that becomes. But even if it's not genetic data, even if all they know is you're a 39-year-old, you live in this county, you have the following health conditions, for some people that's going to be enough to say that's you and nobody else. There was a really interesting piece published just last week showing that over 99% of people could be identified with 15 demographic kinds of identifiers, none of them even genetic, none of them um, counted as the things that need to be removed to de-identify stuff. Computers, the internet, they've made the, they've made the reality of de-identification basically go away. Now, having said that, does anybody really care enough to try to re-identify you? Maybe, maybe not. Personally, I'm not paranoid about it. I, I assume that if anybody wanted to get, uh, wanted to re-identify me, they could, but I'm not that interesting. My genetic data is not that interesting. My credit card data is not th that interesting, but probably more sensitive than my genetic data for me. Uh, but that won't be true for everybody. So. So I, I want to delve a little bit deeper into what you said earlier about, you know, there 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 is the law to protect people from discrimination um, um, accordingly, um, according to their genetics. However, um, you said something about it, it. The law doesn't protect. I mean, the big fear, um, especially in a disease like Alzheimer's, is it's going to impact your insurance. Right. I mean, if right. if. If your insurance company, a big insurance company knows, I have two copies of the APOE4 gene, which effectively means statistically I could, if I live a whole a full lifespan, have over 90% chance of getting Alzheimer's, that could potentially impact me. So is there any law to protect people who are hetero or homozygous E4 from insurance companies um, denying them coverage or actually knowing what their status is, even though they did not hand that information to the insurance company? So GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, prohibits health insurance companies from either asking you about it or acting on it. Now, Oftentimes, they will find that out in legal ways as a result of what they pay for, as a result, as a result of what they're covering. Uh, so let's say you've got an APOE4 homozygous result, and your doctor wants to have a PET scan looking for amyloid, amyloid plaque, and part of the justification for doing that is the APOE4 homozygous. The insurance company would appropriately know about that and deciding whether or not to pay for the PET scan. But they're not allowed to use it against you. However, if it's a disability insurance company or a long-term care insurance company, they can ask and they can use it against you. And, and here's another thing that I don't think people are paying enough attention to. 
There are a lot of ways to predict future diseases, including Alzheimer's. We focused on genetics in a way because I think it's the simplest and it's the, um, it's the sexiest right now. But people are working on blood biomarkers, cerebral spinal fluid biomarkers, PET scans, both for amyloid plaque and for tau tangles. Um, I just learned this two days ago about another potential biomarker involving growing cells from your skin cells and turning them into neurons. And neurons derived this way from people with Alzheimer's disease look different. None of those are covered by GINA. GINA only protects you from genetic information discrimination. It does include family history, but it doesn't include blood-based biomarkers, cerebral spinal fluid biomarkers, neuroimaging, or anything else. So it's almost like science is moving faster than actually the law is um, in its current state. I, I think that's right. Um, of course, the real underlying problem there with health insurance is we don't live in a civilized country that guarantees everybody health coverage. Most yeah. of the world, most of the rich world doesn't have to worry about that. It is our very huh, unique and uniquely bad system of health coverage that makes us an issue in the U.S. So we have a question um, coming in from one of our viewers. Uh, he is a clinical trial participant himself, um, and he's asking, do I have any legal right to my data regardless of NDA, et cetera? Well, part of that's going to depend on what agreements he signed. Um, you do have a right under HIPAA the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act to your clinical medical records. That doesn't necessarily apply to research records, but part of that depends on, on what kind of trial you're in. If it's a research trial that you're enrolled in through a clinician and that is combining clinical care with research care, you may have a right to uh, the clinical part of it, uh, but as far as I can recall, I don't think you've got any specific right to the research-specific findings. Um, I'm not 100% I'm not confident of that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you can always ask. Yeah. What are, that, that raises a really good point. Um, what are the questions people should be asking? So let's say I just got um, my 23andMe. Um, I need to find new health insurance. Um, what should we be asking our providers or should we even bring it up? Should we just not bring it up? I mean, how do we make sure we're protecting our data? Well, one thing you can do is pay close attention to what your um, genetic provider says in their terms uh, terms and agreements and what, you, what boxes you check and what boxes you don't check because really the only big player that's doing a lot of medical stuff right now is 23andMe. Ancestry isn't really doing medical. Family Tree isn't doing medical. There's a new one called MyHeritage, which is doing medical, but is relatively small. Um, you mentioned earlier checking the box about whether you want to share your data for research. If you're really worried about the privacy of your data, you shouldn't check that box. 
if you aren't that worried, you should. So you should pay attention to what the user agreement says. We have all checked the box that says, I have read and understand and agree to the following 47 pages of the latest Microsoft Word update. And <laughs> never read it. <laughs> never read it. Yeah. Uh, but on this one, if you care, you should really pay attention to that. Uh, you should, uh, I think, always talk to a healthcare provider about your results. I personally highly recommend that people talk to genetic counselors. I think counselors are, are a really nice combination of people who have training in counseling as well as have training in genetics. Your primary care doc probably has training in neither of those two things. Uh, some of the clinical geneticists do great stuff, but they're not necessarily great at communicating with real people. Genetic counselors are really good on both counts. Uh, so I would talk to them and I would ask them also about what, if anything, you should be worried about in terms of protecting your information. The one thing I'll say though, it, there is no way to completely protect your genetic information. Even not signing up for 23andMe doesn't completely protect your genetic information. Because if you've got a sibling or a parent or a child who did, that's half of your information. If you've got an identical twin, that's all of your information. You can't protect against your family members doing this. And from your family members' information, somebody who wanted to could find out something about you, or at least probabilities with respect to you. That's, that's how these really interesting genetic genealogy forensic cases, cold cases, have been solved. The criminals didn't join Ancestry or 23andMe, but third, second, third, fourth cousins did. Um, it's really fascinating. I've actually always gone under the presumption, like I've gotten my genes um, tested. I felt like I'm old enough now, so it's okay. But for my three children, I haven't done that yet because I'm scared to put their genetic footprint out there, um, blueprint out there, when I don't know where this whole thing is going, am I am I wrong to be concerned? Or um, in your opinion, should people feel um, it's okay to get your genes tested out there? Um, you know, if as long as you've uh, um, uh, read the agreements and you know what the law is. I guess my fear is, where, do we know where this is all headed? And what if the law changes? And you know, to have your genetics out there, I, I just feel like, especially for my kids, it makes them more vulnerable. Well, so first, for your kids, unless there's some specific symptom or other reason to be worried that they've got something that will affect them before they're 18, wait till they're 18 and let them make their own decision. I really don't encourage parents to uh, test their children unless there's a good medical reason for it. Let the kids when they're no longer kids, make their own decisions. Uh, more broadly, I think we are headed to a world where information is widely available that will include genetic information, that'll include your health information, which already, thanks to electronic medical records, is more widely available than you would like. It includes all of our financial information. I've, I've had my social security numbers and things hacked three times in the last two years. Uh, we're headed to a world where either through illegal hacking or through just legitimate sharing, 
we're going to have a lot less protection in terms of what people know and don't know about us. For the most part, for most of us, genetics is not going to be a hugely powerful, dangerous thing, because for most of us, genetics is like climate. You know, you've got somewhat higher risk of this, somewhat lower risk of that. If you live in San Francisco in July, don't expect heat waves. If you live in Palo Alto, expect heat waves, but that doesn't tell you what the temperature is going to be on July 29th. Yeah. There um, are about, you know, five to 10% of us do have something pretty powerful in our genes. And those people, um, I think, have some specific reasons to be concerned. And the, the real kicker is, unless unless you've been tested, you don't know whether you're, you're in that five or 10% or not. Even then, the biggest thing to, to worry about, I think, would be health insurance. And Gina does a pretty good job of protecting you on that. So my personally, I've done Ancestry. I haven't done 23andMe. I'm, I don't like some of the genetic tests they're doing. I think their BRCA1 and BRCA2 tests actually should never have been approved uh, because they will mislead lots of people because they only test for three of over a thousand dangerous gene versions. Um, I'm not interested in my APOE status. Uh, my wife, whose mother died of dementia, most, most likely Alzheimer's, was interested and has gotten that information on her own. Uh, I think different people can have different views about it, and a lot just depends on, on what you want. Privacy is not, for me, one of the main considerations, but there are people who care about it more than I do, and there are people who care about it less than I do. Figure out what you want, figure out what how much protection you've got, the answer is gonna be not zero, but not perfect. And then make make your call. Different reasonable people will disagree. Okay, uh, yeah, it's obviously, it's like a, it, it, with any new newer issue, right, um, uh, is always the case. So, um, I have a question. I want to. I want to change um, the the direction of our conversation a little bit. Um, stick to data, but talk about the recent Pfizer clinical trial. Um, where, uh, sorry, not Pfizer clinical trial. The the Pfizer case where um, it was revealed that they had a lot of um, insurance data that um, pointed to the fact that possibly a drug called Embril could reduce the risk of, of Alzheimer's disease. Now, again, this wasn't studied and it was Pfizer's choice to decide not to pursue that, um, yeah. but they kept the data. Um, they sat on the data and it raised the moral obligation of how much should big pharma be responsible to release those type of insights so that if Pfizer didn't want to pick up on it, then perhaps someone else would. Right. So they don't have a legal obligation. Their legal obligation is mainly to their shareholders. Their ethical and moral obligation, though, I think goes more broadly than that. And although we all, including me from time to time, like to dump on big pharma, at least they are trying to find things that will help people. They're not tobacco. Yeah. Um, and I think, and, and the people I know in pharma really are committed to that. That's why they do what they do. 
given that, I think it's there is a point where you have to say, we're not going to pursue this, but others might find it useful and make it available. I think the case, it's, it's really an association between embryo use and Alzheimer's um, should have been revealed, ultimately was revealed, probably could have been revealed sooner. But it gets tricky if the company is considering pursuing it. Um, you know, do you want, do you make them give away a potential competitive advantage? How confident do they have to be that they're not going to pursue it? And how valuable does the information have to be? There's been a lot of pushback on whether this embryo connection, whether this embryo association actually makes any sense or not. And, you know, one thing you learn when you hang around medicine long enough is all sorts of things are associated with all sorts of other things sometimes purely by chance or for reasons that don't have any particular causal connection. So I'm glad that they made it public, ultimately. I wish they had made it public sooner. I think pharma should think hard about when it can advance public health and science overall by providing information that it doesn't intend to pursue that might be useful and this goes to this deeper question of sharing science, sharing science results broadly, sharing data broadly um, in an effort to help public health, to relieve human suffering, even though sometimes it puts either a company, a pharma company, a biotech company, or an academic researcher at some competitive disadvantage by letting their competitors know what they're doing it's a hard line to draw, but there should be some felt ethical compulsion to provide the information when it when it could be helpful. Is there, who would be responsible for that? Because it's proprietary data, right? Presumably it was Pfizer's um, own, uh, they, they had access to data, but they were able to make these, draw on these conclusions. Um, and and decide they weren't going to pursue it, right? And right. you know, we at being patient, we interviewed scientists who thought there wasn't a lot, like it wasn't an obvious lead in the data. So it was like the, the media was playing this up. Um, but it's more the question of, you know, would someone else choose to pursue this? Is there a chance that that these so? So, I mean, it's really, you really just rely on Pfizer, right? Or the big pharma to, I mean, no one, there's not a governing body um, who would there's, say you need to release this. There's no legal obligation. There's no ethics governing entity out there. I do think, though, this particular kind of information um, does have the potential of being more widely exploited. This is really information that you can get from electronic medical records. And so big health, uh, health entities, hospital chains or insurers, it doesn't have to be the pharma company. Kaiser Permanente here in California has seven, eight million members with a good electronic health record. It was the electronic health records from Kaiser that unveiled the Heart Disease Association with Vioxx 15 years ago. Looking at, you know, <laughs> Electronic health records should be able to provide a lot of this information in terms of that the kind of association that Pfizer saw. So it's not just pharma that can spot these things. Uh, and we need to be looking more seriously for them. 
The problem right now is that the electronic health records just aren't very good because they're mainly uh, designed to help hospitals and doctors bill as much money as possible, not so well designed to make, uh, make good, provide good health information, with a few exceptions like Kaiser's. Right, absolutely. Okay, Hank, thank you so much. Um, this is a really huge topic that we're not gonna be able to cover um, in, in a short period of time, but I think your insights have really helped um, steer us in a direction about what we should be thinking about, how important it is to really uh, read the agreements if we are going to get um, genetic testing um, and really stay on top of the law, right? And understand our own rights um, versus um, um, big company rights. So thank you so much. I'm sure we might get um, a couple more questions after the fact um, and, and perhaps we could send them on to you uh, later, but thank you so much for your time. Uh, we appreciate it. Let's say one more thing. Yeah. And, and this really doesn't have to do with the law at all. Um, Alzheimer's is a disease that's always both fascinated and terrified me. I've got a very good memory and it's part of who I am and the idea of losing that is particularly worrisome to me. Right now we are at a very, ups we're at a strange moment in Alzheimer's disease research when the amyloid hypothesis, which has been the reigning hypothesis for 20 years, seems to be falling apart. Um, billions of dollars have been spent and lost on it. On the one hand, that's depressing because what looked like our best hope seems to be receding. On the other hand, when you cut down the big trees, all sorts of other things in the forest get a chance to grow. So for those of you who are following Alzheimer's research, the fact that the amyloid hypothesis hasn't worked out is bad. Uh, but it does open up lots of space for people to do other sorts of creative things. Uh, don't give up hope. Um, people are working very hard on this. And um, someday we'll lick it. I hope soon. I hope so too. And, you know, as we see um, Big Pharma just pull back a little bit to kind of reanalyze um, the approach. We're also, I mean, sitting here in San Francisco, I have to say there's some really interesting stuff in biotech that's um, trying to solve the Alzheimer's um, uh, mystery. So, you know, there, there are reasons out there to still be hopeful. So hopefully we're going to recalibrate, get back on track and see more trials coming up. Yep. Great, thank you so much for your time um, and providing your insight. As always, we will always post um, these interviews on beingpatient.com. Leave us more questions if we didn't get to yours. Thanks very much and thanks Hank for joining us. My pleasure. All right, take care. Bye.